Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse. This is Golf Monthly's uh, weekly look at the various different events in the world of golf. My name is Neil Tappin and I am joined this week by just one fellow Golf Monthly member of the team, Nick Bonfield. Nick, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, Neil. Yourself? Yes, I'm all right, thank you. I'm Very just good. back from Orlando, the big PGA show last week. Quite a week, was it? It wasn't quiet, no. It was fairly fairly busy. I mean, the golf industry is, is sizable and anyone who has any product uh, out on the market is exhibiting that week in Orlando. So it's a great opportunity for us to see what's coming in 2016, see what new gear there is, meet with some of our clients, etc. So it's a, it's a great week. But the week before was Abu Dhabi, so it's quite nice to be back in London, back at home. I can imagine. But let's flip the tables for a second. What was your favourite product on well, view at the show? Okay, well, I'll or tell you... favourite moment? I'll tell you, the, the maddest product, I thought, was a push bike for golf. Um, it had on the back of the bike a sort of briefcase-style mechanism, a bit like a pannier that would go on a normal bike, but you had slots for golf clubs in it. You had a little, um, you had various different attachments for the bike uh, that would enable you to get round 18 holes. I thought it was interesting. Maybe not the solution to slow play, because as soon as you've got someone in front of you, it's going to sort of fairly <laughs> limit your, your flow, but an interesting product nonetheless. So as someone who doesn't like slow play, that's possibly not going to make it onto your Christmas list. <laughs> no, something that could make me go slower would be useful. Um, no, no, no one wants to play slower. Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about... Uh, we've got a fairly busy show today. Let's just mention that first. So last week we had um, Qatar and we had the event at Torrey Pines, which both of which produced very interesting results. And then... We, so we'll talk about those. Then we have an interview with Scotty Cameron that um, our technical editor Joel Tadman did while he was at the PGA show. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk a little bit about the Dubai Desert Classic. And I actually, Nick, have a quiz for you. Look forward to it. As somebody who prides himself on their golf knowledge, you really should be getting 10 out of 10 in this quiz, I think. Uh, I mean, we'll see. I'm uh, slightly nervous, shall we say. Well, I said the questions. <laughs> You've got no chance. Um, anyway, uh, let, yes, let's talk about, I think... That, it's interesting when you look at last week's golf, uh, the Farmers Insurance uh, Open and the uh, Qatar Masters, both of which seem to be won by two rounds of golf on the final day that sort of blew everybody else out of the water. Brandon Grace shot 69. I think there were only four other people in the field to break 70 on the last day. Really difficult conditions there. And then Brant Snedeker's final round at Torrey Pines will probably go down as the one of the best rounds on tour all year, I would have thought. Nick, where would you like to start? Let's, um... Well, let's start with Snedeker. I was, I was listening to the bonus golf, uh, which was great to get some bonus golf on Monday, and the commentators were saying that that will probably be considered the best round of the year at the end of the season. I believe the scoring average on that final round was something like 78.9. It was, yeah, something like that. And, and he shot 69. Just looking at the leaderboard <laughs> on the final day, everyone was three over, four over, five over. I believe Scott Brown, who played in the final, not in the final group with Snedeker, but in the actual final group, shot something like 16 over. Yeah, I think he uh, shot an 87, didn't he? Which, which for those guys, that's even in bad conditions, that's a poor score. Yeah, I mean, it's, what does that say about his constitution? I'm not sure. Maybe he just tired of the conditions and just let himself go I'm not and sure the, and the I don't pressure know if we can the final round sure 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 uh, but I'm not sure if we can read that much into it but it was incredible to see his scorecard first of all was bogey 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 double in fact I don't think he made a single par on the back nine whereas Snedeker only made one bogey in the entire yeah, round yeah started off with a bogey started <laughs> off started off with a bogey and made four birdies around the turn and, and compiled an incredible round of golf so Do you, I mean he, he came close the week was it, I think it was the week before um, uh, in Hawaii and uh, he lost in a playoff uh, to Fabian Gomez I think it was and I think he 
he's somebody obviously won the FedEx Cup a couple of years ago, sort of drifted, I think it's fair to say, last year, had a few injury issues. Um, he's a world player, though, isn't he, Branson Eddick? He's one of these people that if he did pop up and win a major, you wouldn't be too surprised. You wouldn't. And he's the kind of guy, much like Mark, Mark Wilson a couple of years ago, who tends to do really well at the start of the season. He won Pebble Beach last year as well. Um, I think with Snedeker, it comes down to timing, rhythm, and his putting stroke. And when he's on, he is absolutely on. I think he held every putt from within 10 feet in his final round. But sometimes he can get a little bit quick, and then I think he gets a bit frustrated with himself when it's not all clicking. However, when it does click, very, very good player. And anyone who putts like that has a chance in the majors if they get on the roll, particularly Augusta, where he's done well before. Here's, an, here's a question for you. So you look at his putting stroke, and he has what they call a pop stroke. I think what's... Um, certainly we've run some content in the magazine about it before. It's very short and very jabby. Uh, then you look at Jordan Spieth, and he um, hits putts, short-range putts while looking at the hole, none of which you would have ever been taught, but they are two of the best putters in the modern game. Um, is putting more art or science? Because some players get very into the science of it. Some players are very, very technically very strong. People like Tiger Woods, you wouldn't have found a more technically sound putter in the game than Tiger Woods. And we're just now out of the era of Tiger Woods and it seems like the two best putters in the in world golf almost are doing it completely against the textbook. Yeah, I think I think I would argue feel uh, and I would argue art over science because, as you say, they're both fairly unconventional, although they're looking at the whole method has been tried and, and trusted by a number of players over the years. But Snedeker, I look at that stroke and think, this is purely as someone who's not particularly technically minded. There's not that much that can go wrong there, particularly from close range. I think that's why he's so successful, and I think that's why he holds a lot of putts from within the 8 to 10 foot range. Um, Spieth is just a monster who works so hard on the greens and has tried every conceivable way of getting the ball in the hole. It's and that work ethic with him, I think. That's it, it, that's it. And, and he's obviously settled on a, on a routine that works very well for him. Um, I think it's all about finding the way to get your ball into the hole and the textbook goes out the window. That's certainly my view on putting. Uh, now, with the Monday finish at Torrey Pines... Um, the que- the, essentially, the question is, was it fair? Because um, Brant Snedeker finished on the Sunday night. He finished. He played those last few holes with the wind right, yeah, very, very strong, but playing straight downwind. So actually, he was able to get up on uh, 18. Uh, certainly, a lot of the players in the field were getting nowhere near 18, um, who were finishing off on the Monday morning. Was he lucky? No, I don't think anyone who shoots 69 in those conditions can be considered lucky. I think this is... Okay, well, was Jimmy Walker unlucky then? I think sometimes in life you just have to say, yeah, I got a bit of a rough deal there. Uh, it was very unfortunate that the wind had switched. And actually what they were saying on the broadcast was that they'd set the pins for the Sunday conditions. So the pins were actually tricky with the new Monday wind as well. But sometimes you just have to hold your hands up and say, I got the wrong end of the draw this time. Golf is a game where that happens a lot with the draw coming into it and being very important in terms of teeing off early and late or late and early. You know, it that unpredictability is an inherent part of golf and that's the way it is. And I don't think anyone should be complaining about that because frankly, there wasn't another solution. I mean, if there was another viable solution on the table, then maybe we could have this discussion. But what else were the authorities going to do? No, no, quite right, quite right. And I think um, Brant Snedeker will go into the Open this year, we'll, as they were saying on the on the coverage yesterday, we'll, we'll park that memory of what happened uh, over that Sunday round and, you know, just let that one sink into the memory banks and then call upon it when it comes to Troon time. And if, if you are listening to this podcast at some point in the future, maybe nearer the Open... Can you possibly remind us at Golf Monthly what happened this week so that we can all put a bet on Brent Snedeker? Plus a guy who's he's done well in the Open over the last couple of years as well. So has he? He has done. Yeah, I mean he was Go on. right up there in 
12 or 13, I want to say 13. He was right up there after at about four holes. Yes, he was up there at Lytham, wasn't he? I think he was leading at Lytham. And Muirfield, I believe he was, he was sniffing around the lead. So clearly a guy who feels comfortable in, in pretty poor inclement weather conditions. Well, um, pass. I, don't, I can't remember. But I'll take your word for it, Nick. Um, okay, so uh, moving on to uh, Qatar. Now, before we talk about Brandon Grace, a memorable mention for Golf Monthly's uh, latest signing. Um, Paul Laurie is going to be appearing in Golf Monthly as a new columnist for us. We're very excited about that because Paul is somebody that we've had a good relationship with over the years. Um, he is outspoken, I think it's fair to say. He He's not he's not scared of saying what he thinks so he's going to be a great columnist for us and we were thinking we were so hopeful week one he's in the league going into the final round um but it didn't quite happen for him i think he was he shot something like 76 in the last round and uh, and struggled uh, and that that gave way to, to to brandon grace but nick before we talk about grace quick word on paul laurie yeah great to have him on board he's obviously an experienced guy with a lot of stories to tell so he'll be a great addition uh, to the magazine i think when you haven't been in contention for a long time even albeit on a course where he has had success before you feel those additional nerves you feel a lot of pressure the conditions were tricky um, yeah and whilst i was surprised that he did end up shooting 77 yeah poor um, whether you just said oh, okay he's going to be the man for the job here sure but for a guy who's pretty much been in the doldrums since the Ryder cup to come and shoot three decent rounds in in tough conditions i think that potentially signals the fact that he's on the way back and, and fingers crossed for that and been dealing with some bad flooding back at home in aberdeen i believe over christmas some fairly difficult yeah. um, can't catch a break with the weather no <laughs> difficult times back there um but Grand brandon grace is the big story here and how big a deal is it for somebody like him to win so early in the season brandon grace to me looks every inch a future major champion in the making um what I admire the most about him is is when he seems to have a setback, he responds admir admirably almost all the time. And you see him sometimes on the leaderboard when you flick on, he's two over for his round. You look back in two hours and he's somehow got it to two or three under. And that is the mark of a really good champion. And I look at his game and I can't really see a weakness. Um, he's able to manoeuvre the ball off the tee. He's very, very solid on the greens from six foot and in. Claw um, grip, no less. Claw grip, indeed. Very odd putting style. But as we said earlier, it's about getting the ball in the hole. And I would argue that there's no weakness there. And I don't think you could say that for too many players in the world game at the moment. And unlucky, actually, not to force his way into the top 10 there, because I think he was 11th going into the week, and he's still 11th. But he's obviously made up a lot of ground, and he'll be within the top 10 within the next couple of weeks, maybe after Dubai. We shall see. But he's a class act. He is a class act, and he is another one of these South Africans who just swings the club so well. Just looks as if nothing can possibly go wrong. And as you go into the into the season I think uh, Louis Tazen is playing this week in Dubai and those two very similar sort of stature very similar golf swings golf swings that don't look like anything could possibly go wrong with them um, they've got to be both of them strong contenders for the year ahead I think definitely and crucially with Grace it's, it's one thing having a good golf swing but it's also another thing having the, the strong mindset and the temperament and you can see that every time that, that Grace gets out there on the course uh, and that's as I say all the time those intangible qualities are arguably as important as the technical aspects in golf Okay, well, that was um, that was Qatar, uh, and now we're going to move from Qatar and go and head over uh, to Orlando, Florida, where uh, Golf Monthly's technical editor Joel Tadman met up with Scotty Cameron. Joel, over to you. Okay, so Joel Tadman here from Golf Monthly. We're at the 2016 PJ Merchandise Show, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Scotty Cameron, Titleist Putting Design Guru. Scotty, thanks for joining us today. Um, first question to you: Of all your putter designs, which one are you most proud of? 
Wow. You know, the Newport Newport 2 is one of the most events and really stemmed from early on of uh, Carson Solheim. And it was a, a kind of a cheap casting in the day, but a great design. So through technology of milling and computers, we've really fine-tuned and made it better. Uh, but started with a great design. So I'm really proud of that. You know, most players, where there's Jordan Spieth or the Tiger Woods, um, that's the one they seem to gravitate towards most. So it's just taken old ideas, turning them to great ideas, and new technology. So Newport, Newport 2, I'm most proud of. And you've worked with so many tour pros down the years. What's the strangest request you've ever had? Um, Turn Pro used his wedge, and he putted very well with his wedge, and asked me if I could put on a face plate and weld it onto the front of his wedge, and I simply said no. <laughs> <laughs> that would look very strange indeed. Um, what do all put great putters have in common? Confidence, but I honestly, to find confidence, you must find a putter you love. So whether it's a heel shaft or a mallet or square to square or big sight lines, find a putter that you love and you love the sound and you love the feel. Because if you hate your putter, I think it's negative and you never find that peace of mind or balance. So find a putter that you love and stick with it. Yeah. This new uh, select line of putters, there's a lot of technology that's gone into this design. Um, what do you think is the next big development in putter design? Well, it's, it's using, we're governed by the USGA on how far we can go. So I have used in this new select line materials to create design. So it's design materials, and through those two things, we can create sound and feel. So it's it's design, it's materials to create performance, sound, and feel. Okay. Now, Jordan Spieth is one of the best putters out there on tour by, by a long way. I mean, what, in your opinion, do you think makes him such a great putter? We've been working with Jordan since he was 10 years old, and it's I think coming into our studio and just understanding what really is going on. We're not going to change you. We're just going to find what's great and what's not great. But for you to see what's going on, so it's to find great teachers and understanding of what the truth is and not not a far-fetched idea. So the studio was to answer questions, to free the mind and go play the game, not get caught up and start guessing. And he's using a very old putter uh, from Titleist. What's the story with that one? Well, he came into the studio, and he uh, wanted this putter. Long story short, saw it, putted with it, asked if he could have it. And that putter probably is going back six years. It looks rougher because it's carbon steel and a bit rusty, but he likes it that way. And if money was no object, um, what putter design would you create? You also have to make it USGA. But we create things out of GSS, German stainless, and we create stuff out of rare materials. Because I want the best I could ever find, and it's not cheap. But uh, we're getting into carbon fiber, we're getting into trilliums, we're getting into mokame, we're getting into Damascus stainless. The issue is the prices just keep on going up. How should golfers go about choosing the right putter for their game? First off, length. Length. Your eyes are slightly to the inside, to inside of the golf ball. For the eyes to be over the ball, unheard of. So in our studio, we use the best players for the last 25 years, understanding what they do and why they do it. We have found through the eyes. Eyes set length. Length sets path. If it's stand too far back because the putter's too long, you dig it inside. If your eyes are too far over because it's too short, it goes outside. So length sets everything. 
a lot of people are set on a certain look, and that's great. We have different looks, but also, what are you trying to do? Straight back, straight through? Or are you trying to fan it and have more in an open sh and shut? So uh, pick a putter that works for you, but length is important. <laughs> okay, well, that was uh, fairly uh, abrupt end to the interview there with um, with Scotty and Joel. Sorry about that. I think that's probably one of the army of Scotty Cameron fans that's probably muscled their way in. Something that's um, well-renowned actually at the PGA show, the number of people that um, want to get a photograph, want to hear Scotty talk. He really is a um, larger-than-life character in the golf industry. Um, everyone seems to love him and, and love what he does and the designs that he comes up with. Um, but I think it's time for us now to move on and talk about the Dubai Desert Classic. Now, Nick, I have a a quiz for you, fairly straightforward. I'm sure you'll do very well uh, as a man who knows an awful lot about golf <laughs> in general. But uh, before we do, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to come up with a name of someone, not Rory. Okay, let's take him out of the equation. And, you know, that Stenson's playing, Oosthuizen's playing, GMAC. Let's park some of the best, some of the top, top players in the world. Of the next run down or lower down than that, who do you think has got a chance of winning this week? Okay, let's go with Ben Ann, who I think is a very impressive player and someone who will build on his success, um, his Wentworth success last year in the European Tours flagship event. I think his game is very well suited to golf in the desert. He obviously feels very comfortable playing out there. Um, he finished fourth or fifth at the DP World Tour Championship at the end of last year. Great ball striker. Great ball it? striker, yeah. Um, really, really good off the tee. And this golf course is, is about position as well as power. So he's one to watch out for this week for sure. Um, actually, I did a. I, I picked him for Abu Dhabi, and I did a shoot with him while we were in Abu Dhabi. And um, it was an interview, and then he hit a few shots for us at the end of it. I think we were on a hole that was measuring 350 yards of par four, and he was knocking it on. It was impressive. It was very impressive to watch, actually. Um, in complete control, um, just smashed, absolutely smashed it off the tee. I couldn't believe how good he was, actually. Um, so I would agree. I think Ben Ann is set for very, very big things in the game. I think he is a, a world top 10 player in the future. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, I would say. Um, but I think for me this week, I'm going to pick Rafa Cabrera-Bayo. Um, past winner, first and foremost. Finished second last week. Played well in Abu Dhabi. Um, and I think with him, it's just about the short game, isn't it? I mean, he's got such a good long... It, you know, of the, the regular European Tour players, he's up there with the very best from tee to green. Whether or not he can hold it together on and around the greens, I think chipping is a little bit of an issue for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, and do you not have some concerns about the fact he seems to fall away fairly often when he's in contention over the weekend? He he does, but he's a winner. He is a proven winner. And I think there can be all sorts of reasons why people fall away at the weekends. I'm sure there's lots of examples of players who, who have fallen away a bit at the weekends. I'm sure it's something that he's thinking about and addressing, but I wouldn't have too many concerns because he's won on the European tour a few times. He knows how to get across the line. And, you know, when he won the Dubai desert classic the first time that was out of the blue and it showed some guts to do that. Cause he was, he didn't win it by miles. He was being chased down the was, stretch. Yeah, I remember that. And, the commentators say, I remember them saying how everyone was going to stand up and take notice of him now because it was such an impressive performance. Hasn't really kicked on from there, but as you say, a, a very good uh, ball striker with, with a good long game. So if you can hold it together around the greens, then yeah, he's definitely got a chance, especially coming yeah. into the event of on such good form. Yeah, I would say I would put him in the, the category of someone like Jamie Donaldson or Victor Dubuisson, who is at a certain level on the European Tour, but quite capable of jumping up a level and making it into the Ryder Cup. And if he wins in Dubai, then, you know, the world is his oyster this year. Yeah. But let's um, let's move on and move on to the quiz. Nick, um, you've got 10 questions. 
uh, I would expect you to get at least eight. <laughs> okay, uh, number one, what is the total prize fund in dollars, US dollars, of this year's Dubai Desert Classic? Okay, one of the better events in terms of prize pool. Just do my euro to dollar conversion quickly. <laughs> Going to go with $3 million? <laughs> $3 million, that's not bad, but not right. Unfortunately, uh, two point six. So that's, ah, that's wrong. Pretty good effort, I'd say. <laughs> um, number two, um, who is who's the course record holder, and what did he shoot? Ooh, okay. I've played this golf course a few times, and I have. What did he shoot? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably started with an eight. If I'm honest, if I'm completely honest with myself, it started with an eight, and so I find it quite hard to believe the score that this person shot. Okay. Okay. Right. Logic would dictate it's someone who's had a good success there before. Someone like an Ernie Else, who's won three times, I believe. Yes. And let's go with uh, 61. Nick, you got it. Boom. Well done. I didn't have you down to get that one. I was laughing to myself, thinking there's no way he's going to get this. Um, but you did. Okay, well, there you go. Um, Mark James was the first winner of the Dubai Desert Classic, but what year did he win? And it was just a golf course in the desert then, I think. It was yeah. a, possibly the Hard Rock Cafe was there and nothing yeah. much else. Well, in the context of the European Tour, it's probably one of the newer events. Oh, really? Oh, we have new events every year. Um, this one's been around for a while. In terms of playing the desert, let's go with somewhere around the early 90s, Mark. I'm going to go with 91. Uh-uh. 89. But valiant try, nonetheless. Um, number four. Five Spaniards have won the Dubai Desert Classic. Um, we've talked about Rafa Cabrera-Bello, so I'm going to give you that one for free. Um, can you name the other four? Okay. Um, Sevi? Yes. Jimenez? Yes. Two-time Masters champion and close personal friend of mine, Jose Maria Olazabal. Okay. Okay, very good. Let me just qualify um, that. I, I went to San Sebastian, spent a bit of time with Jose. Very nice guy. And I'm not sure on the other one. Any hints? Um, you don't know the other one. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, I, I, it's difficult to... What can I say? What hint can I give you that giving it away? He is a... Um, he's a Callaway staff player. I think that's Alvaro Quiros. Yes. Well done. You're right. Um, Desert specialist, Alvaro Quiros. So did you get that? I think you did. Yeah. I was also, as I was looking through the history books, I thought Jose Caceres may have been Spanish, but he's not. He's Argentinian. So mm. um, so almost, we avoided another Emiliano Grillo incident, <laughs> did we? <laughs> almost threw myself a curveball there, but avoided it in the last minute. Um, what did Rory McIlroy shoot last year in terms of how many under par was he? <sighs> He won it by a few, I think. Yeah, dominant he? performance, say 20 under. 22 under par. Uh, that's wrong. <laughs> um, number six, uh, Rory, again, uh, won it in 2009. It was his first win on the European Tour. Um, who did he beat by a single shot? I remember he got out up oh. and down out of the bunker at, uh, at the back of 18, mm -hmm. um, faced a very, very sort of stinky little... Um, two and a half footer with a little bit of left or right on yeah, it I think I only started paying close attention to golf in about 2010 sadly so oh. I'm going to need a clue here uh, probably your favourite golfer of all time 
So if you don't get this, I'd be disappointed. Justin Rose. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, I'll give you that. Um, although that's generous, but I'll give you that. Uh, number seven, I think we are on. What is the golf course called? So it, we know it's played at the Emirates, but what's the golf course called? The Majlis course. Yes. Three Americans have won the Dubai Desert Classic. Um, who are they? Easy one. Easy. Easy one, Tiger Woods. Um, friend of Tiger Woods, Marco Mira. Yes. And the third one, I'm not so sure. Um, Any want, clues? Want a clue? Yeah. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I know that that's subjective, but I think most people would agree. And he has a very good swing, incredibly good swing. Okay. A little pause think, at the yeah. top. Yeah. Nice and smooth and languid. Yes. Yep. Freddie Couples. Well done. Well done. Uh, okay. Number nine. How many par fives are there on the Majlis course? Mm. Um, now, the reason you asked that question is leading me to believe there aren't four. So I'm going to go with three. No, there are four. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like your logic there, though, Nick. Um, but no. You answered that too quickly. You should have just gone through rounds the well, course. Why would you in ask me if there's four? That's standard. Are you threw me. That's a trick question. <laughs> well, actually, it's slightly unusual because there's only one on the front line and three on the back. Um, so yes. Um, Rory made his first cut on the European Tour at the Dubai Desert Classic. But what year did he do that? And how old was he at the time? Okay, so it was a couple of years before he won. 19, 2007, 17. Yes. Well, that's a shock. You got it right. Yes. <laughs> I actually met him that year outside the clubhouse waiting for a taxi. I was waiting for a taxi. He was stood next to me waiting for, I think he was waiting for a courtesy car. And I, uh, I'd heard of him. <laughs> I'd heard yeah. of this lad who was this young amateur who was very good, who was playing in this tournament. But I didn't actually know that it was Rory McIlroy. Um, so if so only I'd have a chat. If only I'd had a quick selfie with him then. If only. Um, Hey so, but where did he finish that week? That's the question. I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, I guess it shows that he, um, right from an early age, was capable of playing that golf course. Mind you, there's hardly any golf courses on the planet that Rory isn't capable of playing. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you very much for listening. That's the end of um, the Clubhouse for this week. Uh, please keep an eye out for Golf Monthly's coverage of the Dubai Desert Classic and the various other tour events. Plus, there are a whole host of equipment launches going on at the moment. You will have obviously heard us talking about um, Orlando week last week. That's when the big manufacturers showcase their new gear. Now, the only place that you're going to hear about that first is um, through Golf Monthly. So, so whether that's our Facebook channel, um, our Twitter feed, um, or on the Golf Monthly website itself. We have the first um, looks at all of this new gear, um, as well as, as I said, the t various tournaments that are going on around the world. So keep an eye out for that. And we look forward to welcoming you into the clubhouse next time.